Oh, I'm looking. Do I dump it? Do I throw the drift? Nothing. Three, two, one. Let's go. Work, 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 work. Welcome back to the Dig Deep Podcast. I'm your host, Stefan Martinez. Um, in St. Louis, Missouri today at, let's make sure I get this high school name right, Mary Institute in St. Louis Country Day School. But for the remainder of this podcast, we would just say MICDS. Uh, with the athletic director, Marshall Newman. Marshall's also been in college coaching for roughly 10 years. Now he's in the AD role, done some AAU circuit stuff. So we're going to be bouncing back and forth on some different topics. But I appreciate you coming on. Really happy to be here. Uh, it's a great opportunity to kind of just spread kind of some, some knowledge I've got and some background and history I've got with some, with some listeners. So we want to hop right into. So Marshall was the lead assistant at Lindenwood for 10 years. Now over his course of – those 10 years at Lindenwood, he, well, they were NEID 2, NEID 1, and then eventually now, which they are now, is Division 2. So could you just talk about, because we were talking about off-air, how different people look at NEI. I think that unless you coached in it, played in it, had a son or a daughter that played it, you don't really know about the level. So you could just discuss, like, what you saw f- without your time at Lindenwood, the talent level, the coaching level, and just, like, the little nuances inside NEI. Right, so at NEI level, I think a lot of people aren't really uh, aware of how good it is, and there are some players at the NEI level, man. Uh, I spent my first two years at Lindenwood. We were NEI Division II, um, and then my last, uh, the next two years, we were NEI Division One before we went uh, to NCAA Division II. And there are some really skilled players, some really athletic players. I mean, you go watch the probably, I'd say the uh, – National tournament, the NAI level, man. There are some players. There's a ton of Division One caliber guys. Matter of fact, the uh, my our last year NAI Division One, we lost to what is now defunct Mountain State in the Sweet 16, and they had eight Division One transfers, <laughs> and they were from like Cincinnati, uh, Tulane, um, George Washington. They had some dudes. As a matter of fact, they started a seven-one kid from Africa who was only a freshman at the time, and when Mountain State closed. That kid transferred to Cincinnati and started for his next three. So there are some players up and down. And you look at schools like Robert Morris out of Chicago. You know they take the six or eight Division One transfers a year. Kids from Chicago who went away, maybe didn't like it, maybe got homesick, maybe whatever, and they end up coming home. So I mean there are some really good players and really big athletic dudes walking around the NEI level. Now that's on the player side. What did you see on the coaching side? Because Marshall was an assistant. Two different head coaches there while you're at Lindenwood, but more notably, uh, Brad Soderberg, who is now uh, the assistant for Tony Bennett at Virginia, who obviously just won a national title. So how how did you see, I mean, jumping into uh, the NEI ranks, were you impressed by the coaching? Did you think that, uh, because at NEI, it's, it's not like you're at a power five. I mean, you're doing a ton. I mean, yes, every college coach is doing more other stuff besides just basketball, but NEI is the budgets are smaller. There's less time to maybe be in the nuances of regards to even making your basketball team better. So can you just talk about, like, the coaching at that level? Yeah, it's kind of unique that a lot of those NAI guys are teaching class or that maybe they're helping in the athletic department or whatever. My, matter of fact, my first couple of years here the, there, my first head coach worked part-time in admissions. 
So, like, it was – you're wearing a lot of different hats at that small college level, but there's some really good coaches. Um, there's a lot of turnover at the NEI level because I think that kind of goes hand-in-hand, hand, people wanting to move up and that kind of thing. But the league we, we played in, the Heart of America Athletic Conference, which is a really good league, there's some really, really good coaches. I mean, Larry Holly just retired from William Jewell. He's one of the best coaches in the history of the game. Uh, like Jeff Sherman, Central Methodist, a really, really good coach. Uh, Rocky Lamar and Mid-American Nazarene in Kansas City is a really, really good coach. Just guys that really had their teams really organized, really prepared, and did a really good job from all aspects. And a lot of those guys at the NEI level, too, have any, uh, JV programs where they got to bring in 30 kids a year because it's kind of an enrollment boost for the school. So they're kind of balancing that along with their varsity team, along with whatever they're doing on campus. So it's just a really, a really tough gig but are some guys that have done it really well over a long period of time. Now to piggyback back off of um, that, we got a little bit into like what it's like to be at the NEI level as a coach, but could you talk about working at a small school uh, regards to the college ranks? Uh, I've, over the last like six to eight weeks, I've been able to uh, go to multiple. I was actually at Cinnadel's practice because I was out in Charleston, South Carolina. That was a military school, so it was a different type of vibe compared to the, the – my audience knows I went to Memphis, I went to Penny's practice. It's just different. Each level has its different difficulties. They're all difficult jobs to a degree, but could you just talk about, you know, maybe the daily of a NEI coach and just the things you have to do that a lot of people don't have to see? Yeah, it's really not quite as glamorous as a lot of people think. So when I first started there, I was a uh, I was the director of intramurals my first couple years. So I was trying to organize, you know, an intramural ping pong tournament through the week <laughs> on top of my regular scouting and recruiting and player development stuff and planning bus trips and planning team meals and planning hotel trips. Um, and it's just one of those things that as a 22, 23, 24-year-old coach, things I thought I had to do and I did have to do just to kind of keep my foot in the door. And then as we got more experienced and we had more success and we moved up, those things were kind of taken off my plate. But for those first three or four years, man, it's a grind. You know, you're showing up at 6 a.m. to get laundry done for practice that day before you had to teach your class. And then you had to go check on your kids and make sure they're in the right classes and do class checks and that kind of thing. Then you got to come over and practice prep for that day. Then at night I'm trying to work on my scout for whoever it is coming up. Um, so it's really, really time consuming, but those, those years when you figure out if you want to do it or not, you know, a lot of people, I think probably get scared away by all that work and all that time, or a lot of people decide this is what I really want to do. And I'm going to bust my tail to try to get a better situation and move up. Now it's funny. You talk about the intramural. I remember cause I was a Juco kid and then an NEI kid after that, we would have practice, you know, around depends my junior year. Cause we had different staff, my senior year. We would have practice at like three or four o'clock. We'd done it like five or so. We'd eat. We'd go back to the dorm. We'd come back and shoot at night, like eight or nine o'clock. Or our assistant, we'd come in there to shoot. He'd be in there running the dodgeball tournament for the regular. What uh, my JUCO coach would love this. He used to call those those uh, students on campus that didn't play a sport. He'd call them civilians. So the civilians <laughs> would be in there. Um, Playing and also me and Marshall went to the same JUCO by the way. Coach Dixon is the one who'd always call them civilians. But yeah, we'd come in there to shoot. You know, we're trying to get some shots up, and Coach Cream, our assistant's in there running a dodgeball tournament. So, but pretty funny. Uh, now, with you being such an assistant coach for an extended amount of time, uh, knowing what you know now, now that you're an athletic director role out of the college realm, uh, if you could give yourself advice as an assistant coach, the musts, the don'ts kind of the nuances regards to what you think is most important uh, to benefit. Because I, I do think uh, being an assistant at any level, whether you're a 
dental assistant, your basketball assistant, whatever. It's just about taking as much stuff off the head coach's right. plate as possible. So you could just talk about the must, the don'ts, regards to being an assistant. I think the biggest thing is trying to prioritize what your head coach thinks is important and make those important to you. I always had a rule of thumb. You know, I would come in to the work day with probably three, four, five things I needed to get done, whatever those be. It might be big task, small task, whatever. But if my boss asked me to get something done, those things are going on hold and I'm doing whatever he needs to get done, done. It's not going to be added to my list. It's going to be added to the top of my list to get done. So I think prioritizing what your boss holds important is the biggest thing, Either if that's if that's making sure the travel's okay or making sure the locker room's cleaned up or making sure the manager's set to go for that afternoon or making sure the video's set for the upcoming scout, whatever, and making sure those are priority too, um, to you as well. And I think the – the other thing is, and this has kind of driven me nuts as I was an assistant coach for a couple head coaches and now an assistant coach I help out with our high school team, is I cannot stand it when assistant coaches are yes men. You see a lot of guys that are yes men. And I always thought, felt like I had earned some trust from our head coach. So for me just to agree with whatever he thought was doing everyone a disservice. Now, there's times I did agree with him, and I would say, yeah, that's a good idea. But I also felt confident enough in myself, even if I was wrong, you know, to, and ultimately knowing he's not going to go with what I say, you know, he might say, hey, we need to look at hard hedging this ball screen. And I'd say, no, that guard's too good. You know, maybe we should try to jump it or maybe we should switch if it's position to position or whatever it might be. I felt like, you know, he had hired me. He kept me on his staff. So I felt like I was doing everyone a disservice if I should greet them all the time. And if I felt different, I would be sure to tell them. So I think those are the two biggest things, prioritizing what your head coach thinks is important and then also not being a yes man. Uh, you know, I, I've seen other assistant coaches just be yes men and say, yeah, I agree with that, or yeah, let's do that. When I know behind closed doors they've told me they didn't feel that way. And I'm looking at them like, yo, you don't got to be combative and tell them I think you're wrong, you're an idiot, but you can say, hey, what do you think about doing this, doing it this way or that way? No, I, I, it's funny you say that because as players, <clears throat> at some point in the year, there's going to be, like, if we're play, we're teammates together and, say, we're two of the leaders on our team, me and you are going to bump heads at some point sure. because, you know, like, uh, Marshall, you you got to get a better angle on your screen. you got to do this. You're telling me, hey, stop turning the ball over. Like, and there's going to be some sort of – and I think the staff needs the same thing. Correct. You know, I I mean, yes, I we would all love all our players to be yes men too, but let's call what it is. Your best players are going to say, hey, coach – uh, that's not really a good idea. Right. And I think that on the flip side, coaches have to be okay with that too. Right. And I, but I do think there's head coaches that don't like assistants saying no, and they also don't like players saying no. Right. Now, the high school and college level is a little bit different. You're talking about men and still talking about boys. I get it, a little more dictatorship. But uh, now going back to the NEI thing, let's talk about the level regards to – comparing it to other levels. Um, I think most people are pretty familiar with the high major power five, how good it is. But then once it gets in that mid and especially when you get to low division one, power division two, yeah. and then your power in the eyes, I always say whatever level besides your power fives, you got to steal kids. It should be at a higher level. You got to steal a few kids. So for instance, like, do you think that John Morant, do you think Murray State stole him away from some other schools? Yeah, they saw something later on. Jarrett Culver, two-star recruit at Texas Tech, and then boom, he's a top-10 pick. So um, I remember going to the NEI National Tournament, I guess, man, I guess that was whew, probably four years ago, yeah. 
And it's my first time there because I didn't get to play in it. And I watch it, and I'm like, okay, so these are not NEI schools. These got these schools got six or seven kids that should be playing um, in a uh, for sure a Division One conference. So if you just talk about the different levels of what you've seen, what differentiates each one, mm-hmm. and just how small the margin is. Yeah, the margin is super small. And if you want to win at Division Two or NEI, you've got to have Division One players. And from what I've seen, the the top tier, the power Division Twos, you know, the schools that routinely make it to the Sweet 16 or even the tournament in general, those teams can compete at the low major, low major level. You know, you take a team like Northwest Missouri State right now, you know, as good as they've been the last couple of years, they were undefeated last year, ran the table, national champs. You stick them in a low major conference like the OVC or the Sun Belt. I'm not saying they're going to win it, but they're not finishing last. And by the flip side, you take some of the schools out of those leagues and throw them in the MIAA, the GLVC, uh, the Northeast 10, really good leagues. They're not going to blow everybody away. It's just not going to happen. And I think what I've seen from that level, the biggest difference is the bigs. Because there's tons of guards. You want to go out and find a six-foot to six-foot-four dude that can go? There's a lot of them. And not all of them go Division One. But the pool of guys six, eight and above isn't that big. You know, so they're going to get plucked up by the Division ones, even if they're stiffs, and they're going to get developed because there's not many of them. So I think that's the biggest things. And I used to tell one of my buddies who was a head coach in the OVC when we were really good and just gone Division two at Lindenwood, and we were 29 and five, 28 and three. You know, I told them, I said, you take our two teams and let's go play to YMCA in the summer, shirts and skins, and take about 10 basketball fans who don't need, neither one of them know our team, and walk in there and tell me which team's Division one, which Division two. They wouldn't know. You know, at the time, we had a couple 6'10 kids as well. You know, so we didn't. Slow. Yeah, we had a kid who started in the A-10 as a freshman that came over to our place. Another kid that was 6'11 and a big body, too. You take those kids and have them play shirts and skins with a with an OVC team. Again, this is a, a buddy of mine's team. They wouldn't know who's who. It's just the way it goes. And the NEI level is even more so because there are a lot of guys. The, the rules at the NEI level aren't quite as strict as they are at the D1 and definitely the D2 level. So you get some dudes that have transferred three, four times. Guys might be a little – there's no age requirements. You might guys that are 24 hooping at the NAI level. Guys that have been who knows where for the last couple of years. And they come out there and they got some guys that can go. You know, I think that what I've seen, the probably the upper echelon of NAI schools. I'm talking like your teams, like Georgetown College, Pikeville, you know, the, team, the teams that get to the uh, – uh, Louisiana, with Shreveport. Shreveport and Alexandria have been both been really good the last few years. You take those teams, they can compete with about any Division II team in America. But I think the bottom tier of the NAI is, is a little more watered down than it is. You know, the upper echelons are going to be able to compete just because they've got the funding, they've got backing, they've got a coach that's going out, and some, somebody's connected because they're getting three, four, five Division I transfers and good Division II guys who, for whatever reason, are leaving. If they clocked out or whatever it is, they're coming to the NAI level and just putting up buckets for a year, and they're sending a ton of guys overseas every year. Yeah, having that uh, – the last episode we had on with EJ, he was talking about shared connection. Mm-hmm. This person knows this person, this person knows this person. That can really, you know, benefit your program. I, the bigs is definitely uh, a big deal. I, I remember when I was at Northwestern State, Division One, we played in the Southland, same league as – Stephen F. Austin, Corpus Christi. But, you know, we'd always go play four or five power fives every uh, non-conference. And every year it was the same thing. We'd go play Arizona. They had Tarzuski, killed us. Right. We'd go play Oklahoma. They'd have two bigs that would just kill us. Our guards could handle their own. Were they better? 
I don't know if they say we're better, but right. they could at least. Right. They're in the same realm. They, if, if they played five guards and we played five guards, it's going to be a 10 to 12 point ball right. game. But once they start getting the bigs on the glass, mm-hmm. playing a little back to the basket, like it was just, it was really hard. And the rim protection thing was a big deal right. too. Um, no, it's a very good point. I remember even being at Lion, we'd go play. We played SEMO, Tennessee Martin, uh, Arkansas State. Like we could shoot it, we could handle it. But the bigs would just give us a, a real problem. Uh, now we're going to shift gears. Um, so, like we've mentioned, Marshall was deep into the recruiting side of NEI from D2, D1, um, and then he was also played JUCO D2 like I did. And we came to the conclusion that not a lot of people know about NEI, but they also don't know about the scholarship side side of things. So we're going to. Dip into that. I'm kind of let him kind of go free roam and kind of talk about it. But let's first talk about like what they are now. So there's right. two divisions in NEI right. and there's two divisions in JUCO. Right. So could you first, because we were off air, we were talking about because the rules are getting ready to change in NEI regards how scholarships are going to be uh, divvied out and that type of deal. So first, talk about uh, let's let's go JUCO first. Okay. okay, let's go JUCO first. Talk about the scholarships because those are not changing next year. No. Correct. Okay, those are not changing next year. Let's talk about where they are staying this year, uh, JUCO D2, difference between JUCO D1, and then if you wanted to hop into just the differences between the levels, right. and I, I think most people, especially in the Midwest, know how good JUCO right. and the D2 level is. So you just talk about JUCO. So we've got Division Two and Division One junior colleges, and actually we've got really good ones in our area. Um, you know, the Southern Illinois Division One JUCO is really good, as is the one in Missouri. There's not a whole lot of teams in it. So Division One JUCOs can pay for everything. It's just like going to a Division One university. You're getting full freight. You're getting your your books, tuition, fees, plus your housing. That's the big difference. Division Two, like the school we played at in Peoria, or uh, you know Merrimack, which is National Community College, I guess, uh, at Forest Park. They're not paying for housing, so you're still getting you're still getting your books, your tuition, um, you know, any any fees or dues or whatever, but you're just not getting your housing paid for. Um, so that's why you get a lot of guys, really really good players, that go play at a Moberly or Three Rivers or Middle Area, or you know, my kids have gone to play at Iowa Western and Council Bluffs, Iowa, and had a ton of success up there, uh, and they're paying for your housing. That's the biggest thing. That's why those schools are really really good. I mean, I went and watched. Um, the region championship last year between Southeastern Iowa and Iowa Western. Um, and it's, man, it's just like, uh, you know, a ton of dudes that can go. There are guys coming off the bench. I was, I was like, man, this guy can play. And they're like guy seven at Southeastern Iowa. You know, uh, I think that the Division Two is a little more watered down because of the because of the housing situation. So you might see guys at Division Two occasionally might go Division One if you get a really good guy that maybe transferred home or, or you know, maybe didn't want to go away or whatever. But most of the guys at Division Two are going at JUCO Division Two or Division Two guys, NAI guys, even Division Three guys at the NAI or the JUCO Division One level, you know, you're seeing a lot of guys go Division One, a lot of low major guys at the at the JUCO Division One level. And then a lot you know, some Division Two guys and some NAI guys as well. But I mean, you just—if you just line up a D1 JUCO and stand them next to a D2 JUCO, you can tell the difference just in the type of guy. You know, the, the D1 JUCO guy is six foot five and up, arms down to his knees, looks the part. You know, all airport team probably jumps out of the gym. You know, those type of guys. Uh, when the D2 JUCO guys are more, you know, a little bit shorter normally, maybe not quite as athletic, maybe just as skilled, but just because the scholarship situation is such that housing isn't cheap. So you know. If, uh, if a D1 JUCO comes in and says, hey, we're paid for everything plus your food and housing, you're, you know, you're going to take that opportunity. 
Now, right now at the NAI level, there are two divisions currently. There's NAI Division One and NAI Division Two. At the NAI One level, there are a lot of 11 scholarships, which is more than Division Two. Actually, people don't know that. Yeah, 11 fulls. They have 11 full scholarships, and those can be divvied up however you see fit. So your budget is 11 times whatever full cost is. You know, so if for whatever reason your school is is 10 grand a year, that, that's everything. 10 grand for housing, books, tuition, fees, the whole deal. Your tuition is 11 times that. Now, there's exemptions as well, and this is where a small college comes into play, and a lot of people don't realize how important academics is at the small college level because right now at the NAI one level, you have exemptions. So if I'm coming out of high school and I've got over a 27 ACT or over a 375, not, not and, or, I'm a full exemption, meaning a school gives me a full ride. They don't have to count that toward their budget at all. And if, to be a half exemption on the flip side of that, if you're over a 23 ACT and over a th- or over a 3.5, you're a half exemption. So if school costs 10 grand and give you a full ride, only cost them five grand toward their budget. So a lot of people don't realize how important academics is. Um, and so you're against 11 at the Division One and, and six at the Division Two level and, uh, for NAI. Now going forward next year, they're going to combine the two NAI levels. So right now they're still currently NAI one and two. Starting in the what 2021 year. It's just going to be an NAI level, not NAI 1, NAI 2. It's going to be NAI. And they're going to drop that number down from 11 to 8. So you've got eight scholarships. So Division 2 will move up to Division 1 will move down three. So you're going to have eight scholarships uh, at your budget, at your disposal. Now, again, this is all if your school feels, you know, that wants to full, fully fund you. A lot of schools aren't fully funded, but many are. Um, and those exemptions will hold up as it, true the same. And also if you're taking a transfer, you're taking a JUCO kid, a Division 1 transfer, Division 2 transfer, or an NAI transfer, you know, if you have over a 3.6, you're a full a full uh, exemption, which is, I mean, I'm not saying 3.6 is easy to do, but it's not out of reach, you know. And if you're over a 3.3, you're a half exemption. So those two things make it really easy to put together a quality roster at the NAIA level, even with eight scholarships. Um, so I think, again, a lot of people don't realize how important it is to get those grades because a lot of people might say, all right, here's a half scholarship for basketball but you might still qualify for a half scholarship for academics or a quarter or whatever it is. So you can really piece it together um, at the NEI level, I think, more than you can at others. Yeah, so that's a lot to intake there regards right. to what's going on with everything. So basically, if your school costs, let's say, ten grand, and you come in with a 27 mm-hmm. ACT, you're a full exemption. Right. So basically, that scholarship money is not counted towards that coach's budget. Correct. Exactly. So take the academic thing seriously. Um, if you having some humility, some self-awareness, like, hey, I'm going to be an NEI kid, which there's no harm and shame in that, um, that that exemption thing can really uh, benefit you. And if we have some coaches listening, uh, I'm sure there's been some mistakes too. Uh, I'm sure a coach has got three or four or five papers in front of him trying to figure out sure. the whole budget of what's going on with – uh, everything regards to the paper, but that was some super good information. Um, now, regards to the level of NEI one and two, I personally saw the difference. Um, I think that it's almost equivalent to JUCO D one and D two. Uh, from what we just said, scholarship wise, there's more scholarships, we get better players, more better players. Um, to back up just a second, we were talking about JUCO, and even like I'll take for instance, so Minyo areas in my backyard. I don't want to. I don't think. I don't want to mess up the number, but I do believe. 
So they're those athletes there are on full scholarship, right. but I do believe they get, I think, 25 bucks every Friday as well right. to pay for their weekend meals because the they don't they had their cafeteria open like limited hours. Right. So like they really try to do the most they can. They have a really nice budget there. I'm sure Mobile's the same way, mm-hmm. and multiple other JUCO uh, Division ones, but. Yeah, talk about the level difference between because you guys jump from NEID two right. to Division one, so you could just talk about the difference between those two. Yeah, the difference is almost like we said with JUCO in terms of the type of player you get, because obviously it's easier to stretch a, a budget from eleven full rides to put together your roster of fourteen, fifteen guys than it is from six, which you were at, you know at NAI two. So just the type of player you get, because you're giving guys closer to fulls, is you're gonna get you're gonna get players, you're gonna get bigger dudes, you're more athletic guys, better players. Um, and I think, but I th- I think at the NAI level as compared to Division two, I don't know what percentage of schools are super are, are well funded, like totally funded. I think at the Division two level, I think most are close to fully funded, but the NAI level, I think a lot of them aren't. And that's why you see a lot of the haves and have-nots, like teams like we talked about a minute ago with like Pikeville, Georgetown, uh, LSU Alexandria, LSU, LSU Shreveport. You know, those schools are fully funded schools, I have to assume. And that's why they, could, they continue to get guys in there every year. You know, the riches become richer, and the schools that aren't fully funded are struggling to, you know, keep their head above water, maybe have a good year here, then, you know, not a good year the following year because they couldn't get a few guys, maybe they got a budget cut or, uh, you know, lost a scholarship or whatever it might be. So I think the NAI level as compared to the others in terms of funding is really all over the place. I think the majority of NCAA Division II schools got to be at least close to their max. And JUCO, I think, is the same. But the NAI level, some of those schools are – really stable and really well off and do a really good job supporting their their athletics and some of them are kind of struggling and they can't they can't afford, they just can't afford to give out 11 full rides every year maybe they give out four maybe they give out seven maybe they give out nine uh, it's just it's just hard um, for schools that size to be able to piece together you know a roster year by year okay we're gonna uh, shift gears uh, so like I said Marshall's the athletic director here at MICDS um, so I I believe that especially the high school rank, that you have coaches that coach in high school and then, boom, they move into an AD role. So I think it will be good to kind of have them understand it. And then on the other side, high school coaches, college coaches, they have to have a relationship with their athletic director. So kind of see the both sides of uh, maybe an agreement, a disagreement, different things like that. So the first question is why did you get out of college coaching to then now be an athletic director and not be around, you know, practice on a daily basis so much? Well, my move was uh, somewhat forced, um, just to go back into my, my background a little bit. I was with Coach Soderberg at Lindenwood for his six-year tenure there. Um, he left to go to the University of Virginia. I was the interim head coach at Lindenwood. I didn't get the job. And at that point, it was like, okay, I've invested the last 10 years of my life here. What do I do now? You know, My network was such that I made enough friends and, and talked to enough people and just recruiting on the road. You get to know people and, you know, people that maybe were in your league at one point, you stay close with and they move on and they move up and whatever. And I had two or three Division two opportunities at schools like Lindenwood that was the same, you know, essentially the same job I was leaving. And I was thinking to myself, man, do I really want to go start over? You know, my, my father-in-law always joked coach's first year that I guarded my desk. You know, I got in the office at 6 a.m. I left at 10 p.m. I never wanted him to be there and not know I was there, too. So he says I guarded my desk every day, which is probably fairly accurate. 
And just the prospect of starting that over again, even with a head coach that I probably knew and knew, you know, knew my reputation or, you know, trusted me because he'd been around me or talked to people I knew or had worked with or whatever. Just the, the prospect of starting that over again really wasn't too high on my list considering I just had my second kid. Uh, I'd been married for, you know, five years. And I just really didn't want to move my family to, you know, one school was in Arizona, one was in Indiana, uh, somewhere where I didn't really know what the future held with with my family. Um you know, just to start moving my family forever. And, you know, my buddies always said, if I was 23 right now, I'd go do it. But, I mean, I'm, I'm moving my – taking my wife out of her job, my two kids out of school and going somewhere where I don't know anyone and kind of starting from scratch. And then a few of the high school jobs in the area opened up, basketball coaches, not even on the athletic administration side. Um, and I, I talked to them all, and I got a few job offers. I thought, I thought, hmm, the idea of having my own team kind of sounds good right now. So I kind of pursued those, and in, in that process, I got to speak into the former athletic director here, uh, Don Maurer, who had been on staff at Illinois on the flying Illini teams in the 80s, uh, was slew high for a long time, won a state title here as a basketball coach his first year here, and then stepped aside to become the, the AD. He was leaving to go to work for Misha and needed to replace himself, and he kind of called me and said, hey, what are you thinking about doing? I hear you're looking at high school jobs, and I said, well, I, I am. But I don't really know, you know, kind of looking all over the place to try to find a job. And he said, well, I'm going to work for the state. Um, I need to replace myself here. Do you think you'd want to come over and meet and look around? And I, you know, I knew the place fairly well because of we have the holiday tournament here that, you know, always attracts some college coaches. So I've been here to recruit it. But I didn't know much about the school or the opportunities here. And I came here and looked around and thought, oh, my gosh, this is an incredible campus. You know, the, the people here are super nice. Um, you know, the idea of being close to home. And then when they told me I could be on staff and kind of help coach here too, that kind of fed my you know appetite to to be around the basketball thing quite a bit. And you know to be honest, the idea of uh, playing a home game at seven and being at home at nine, as opposed to playing a game and having an eight, nine, ten hour bus ride afterward, was uh, was kind of appealing as well. So I kind of jumped at it and kind of dove into it with no athletic administration background. Uh, aside from kind of being the own AD for our team at Lindenwood, you know, because I was doing all of our travel and all of our budget stuff and ordering all of our gear and scheduling all of our games, all of our practices, organizing just about everything. Um, so basically I'm doing what I was doing for one team, but I'm doing it for 27, you know. Um, and thankfully we have a good group of coaches here that kind of help take some of that weight off my shoulders and, and do a lot of the stuff that they uh, need to do themselves. But it's just, it's just a different work environment, and it's, uh, it's fun. Every day is a challenge, and it's just – it's just good to be around um, like-minded coaches and, and that kind of thing. And just, you know, the idea of having some summers off and some time I spent with my kids. And, you know, I was at a point in Lindenwood when I left where my oldest son was aware enough to know when my garment bag came out of the closet that I was going to be gone for a few days. So I think my last uh, – we, we went to the conference tournament in Kansas City and my last year and my oldest son was taking my clothes out of my bag and throwing them on the floor because he knew it, he knew what it meant and that kind of stunk you know um you know I, my wife and I had a conversation when we got married before we got married actually that was hey I'm gonna do this I'm bound and determined to coach in the NCAA tournament you know we might have to move to Alaska next year we might have to move to Maine the following year we might have to move to Texas the year after that and she had played college basketball thankfully so she was all in and you know was you know on board with me but once you have kids man that you know the priorities kind of change and things things change and you know the idea of being around my kids as much as I could and 
putting them in a position to come to our school and be around me every day. You know, if you come to one of our our sporting events here on campus after school at 4:15, there's a good there's a good chance one or both of my kids are going to be running around, and it's just you know that opportunity was just too too good for me to pass up. Now, regards to uh, like the daily of like an AD, could you talk about just you know what's the daily you know work day? You know, let's say it's you know in the middle of November, so. Like you just mentioned, he's got 27 sports here. Um, my high school, I don't, I don't know how many. I mean, we were a class four too, but we weren't private, so I think we only had probably, oh, I don't know, 14 maybe, 16, probably something like that. So you just talk about like the daily of an athletic director. Well, my first thing I got to come in and do is make sure that all of our sports, all of our contests for that day are confirmed. Do I have refs? Is the other team aware? They're mixed up on dates, so I confirm everything for that day. Uh, first thing I do when I come in. And then I look at confirming everything for the following day. So I double check for today that I confirm everything for the following day. So that means I send an email out to all officials. Teams were playing. Uh, people who may need to know about the contest, like a cheerleading coach or a pet band director, or maybe it's a home football or basketball game. So I got to loop in our concession stand folks that are going to be selling hot dogs and Gatorades and whatever else. Um, Maybe it's our, our maintenance crew who's going to help me set up the volleyball net. You know, Anybody who needs to know about our contest, I'm going to make sure they know about it. And I, I found that over-communicating is way better than under-communicating that helps uh, you know, alleviate a lot of problems. And then I've got to get to setting up for whatever event we've got. Thankfully, today we don't have any events, I don't think, on campus. Nope, we don't. But maybe i got to set up the football field. Maybe I've got to set up, make sure the gym's ready to go, which means pulling the bleachers out, getting the hoops set up, getting the benches set up, making sure the referee's locker room's got you know, water in it and everything they need in it. Um, and then I have to do schedule for all of our sports, so that's like an ongoing. That never stops. You know, this team's just going to schedule. We got stuff scheduling for the spring, then the fall, then the winter, then the spring. You know, just going and going and going. Um, and then on top of that, I got to get out and support our athletes as much as we can. You know, if uh, a team's at home, I want to get out there and see them, make sure they see my face, and talk to their parents, and make sure their coaches know I'm there. And if they have any kind of issue, um, and maybe it's a home game tonight, but an away game tomorrow. You know, like football was at St. Dominic and St. You know, O'Fallon last Friday. Uh, this Saturday we're home, and we did playoff start, so we could be going here, there, or wherever. Um, so it's really busy. I don't think my hours have changed from the hours I was working before, but I think I'm doing it a lot close to home and in a lot more um, family-friendly atmosphere, not quite as uh, cutthroat and not quite as uh, – a little more laid-back atmosphere, a little more laid-back. Obviously, the athletes are they're serious athletes, but it's not like they're college kids that are on full rides. Right. Um, and the parents understand that, and they're great. And, you know, everybody knows my kids and me. And, you know, it's, it's, it's fun to be around. I think the high school age is a really nice – it's really fun to be around those kids because you can joke around with them a little bit, and it's not super serious. I mean, it is. I don't mean to, to take away from what we're trying to do here. But it's, uh, it's just a lot more a laid-back atmosphere than the college level. Now, Marshall lives in a little bit of fantasy world here. Uh, he doesn't deal with as many disciplinary actions. Uh, you know, he doesn't have uh, kids throwing off, you know, fireworks in the hallway. <laughs> like, you know, feels as if that a lot of the kids here are well-mannered, do what they're supposed to do, take care of their academics, take care of their schoolwork. You know, uh, we both know Chad Mills. You know, he's yeah. the athletic director at my high school. And by no means does it is it crazy down there, but he's got to deal with probably a little more uh, – non-humility parents at times <laughs> right. that don't really know the nuances of how sport works. Um, now, last thing I want to talk about is uh, Marshall helped with uh, the Gateway uh, AAU program here in St. Louis. And I just want to briefly talk about, so he's coached some AAU, 
Um, he's been around the St. Louis area, and the basketball has grown here uh, over the last 10 years for sure with basically an NBA player coming out about every four or five years. Um, how can players and parents maximize their AAU experience? I feel like that uh, it's just because you play AAU doesn't mean that you're going to get the most out of it. Right. Um, I think that there's a fine line between getting exposure and getting exposed right. and knowing as a player like what your role is going to be on that team, how the th- whole thing works, what you should be showcasing. So do you just talk about, and on the parent side too, what to expect and how to really maximize that? Well, I think one of the reasons basketball has grown in the area is there are more opportunities. You know, when I, when I was in high school, there were two AAU programs in town, and if you didn't make one of those, you're going back to the, you're going back to the gym to work out with your high school team. And that's, that's really all there was to it. And now there's, you know, three or four other quality AAU programs, you know, not just teams that are going to play some local stuff, but teams that get out and travel, and they're putting out the college play, you know, college players. Maybe they're not the high-profile college players, but they're putting out guys that are getting scholarships, and they're competing on a national level, which is great. And I think as that grows, that um, leads to more, you know, better basketball in the area. I think that's why I think now there's six, eight, ten teams that are really good in the area as opposed to one or two or three and guys, a lot more guys are coming out and getting college scholarships and opportunities to play at, at any kind of level. Um, and I think the, I think the 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 fit there, you know, is is the biggest thing when parents and kids are looking for a team is, is fit. You know, uh, where are you going to be able to a play and b put on a, put in a position where you can play effectively? You know, don't chase what's what you think is best or what you know your parents think is best or just because player X played here, I gotta try to play there too. You know, you wanna play somewhere that you can A get better. I don't I don't I think that's the biggest thing. I think a lot of people neglect that is that we're trying to get better here. Especially like the 15, 16 level, you're trying to get better. So being somewhere where you're gonna be coached, you're gonna work, you know, you know, you're gonna practice, you're gonna practice with like minded players, plays that players that want to practice, want to get better, want to be coached. That's the biggest thing. And I think that gets lost a lot. And I think a lot of people are trying to follow the success. You know, I want to win this tournament, or I want to get to this tournament, or I want to be seen by this guy. Well, that's great and all, but if you're not getting better in the process, what are we doing? Right. Especially at the younger levels. Now, I get at the 17s level, maybe that's a little different where you're just trying to be seen by as many guys as you can. But I think getting better is 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 the biggest thing. And the opportunity to do that is there, but it's finding the right the right fit, the right guy or girl, the right person that's coaching your team is going to put you in a position to be seen, to get better, to play with guys that, you know, are on the same page as you. Um, and I think what you can expect, you know, that kind of varies as to what your goal is. You know, is your goal – and I think you have to be realistic in those goals because it's any, easy for any player to say, hey, I want to play at the Division One level. Well, maybe you do. We all do. But is that really realistic for you if you're – going to be a senior next year and you were you scored two points a game last year and you were your team's ninth man that's probably not realistic let's focus on getting better somewhere where you're going to practice a few times a week with a good coach that's going to push you and make you get better um now on the flip side of that maybe you're a dude that got 20 games a junior and you're a player of the year in the in a good league like the mcc or the suburban league or whatever and yeah you need to be seen you need to go play at a big time level but odds are at that point you've already been seen you know so I think that, that parents need to be realistic with, with coaches and that the, the whole goal of this is that we're trying to A, and get better, get better every day, get better in practice, get better in your games. And then anything after that is really 
you know, like you said, exposure or getting exposed. A lot of guys that want to go play, hey, I want to go play in July and be seen. Well, what have you been doing to get to that point? And that's we always said that at the college level, that July is either for exposure or getting exposed. And we always found it easier to cross guys off our list than it was to add guys to them. We wanted to see every kid in Saint, the St. Louis area who was potentially a college prospect and cross them off our list if, if they weren't good enough. So that way it's like, hey, have you seen so-and-so at this high school? Yeah, we saw him last July a bunch. We didn't think he was good enough. Took him off our list. It's a lot easier to add, take guys off your list than it is to add guys to your list. And, you know, just kind of to key in a little bit on how we did things at the D2 level, by the time we talked to a kid, we already had made our mind up we wanted that kid. And I must say every, every school does this this way, but we use the terminology that we fished with a hook and not a net. A lot of dudes would be like, I'm going to this tournament. I saw eight dudes that can play. I'm going to throw scholarships that off, off them all and take the first one that sticks. Well, we've tried to find the guy, not a guy. So by the time we had talked to the kid, we've seen him play multiple times, spoken to his high school coach, his AAU coach, maybe even someone else that we know has got a connection to him, maybe somebody like his, like his trainer or you know somebody that he works with on the side, and we found out, you know, is this a kid that's a self-starter? Is this a kid that's a gym rat? Are we going to have to you know, make him get in the gym and get better? Is this a kid that wants to lift? Is this a kid that wants – is he a leader? You know, how is he on campus? Is he a liability on campus? I'd if he's a liability at the high school level on campus. It's even more so at the college level where you're not getting babysat eight hours a day when the kids are free to have their own time and do their own thing and be in the dorms. Oh, man. Right. <laughs> be in the dorms. Um, so by the time we've gotten to calling a kid, reaching out to the kid, inviting him to campus for an unofficial or whatever, we've already pretty much made up our mind that we want him. So a lot of people get freaked out that, hey, I've been playing AAU basketball for three years at a good at a high level or a good level, and I'm not getting a ton of recruiting. Well, just because you don't know about it doesn't mean guys aren't evaluating you and seeing you. So I think that parents, too, need to be cognizant of that. You know, a lot of people, coaches might say, or kids might say with their parents, hey, you know, we've been traveling, we've been doing this, we've been doing that, and we're not getting any love. What's that all about? Well, you're still getting seen, you know. I've got schools in the MIAA and GLVC calling me almost every day, asking me what I think about guys from what I've seen. So it doesn't mean they are, have made their mind up on guys. They're trying to gather information just like everyone else is. Because the scholarships, people don't give them out that easily. You know, that's a lot of money. And it's just somebody's livelihood. You know, I've, I had a kid that I coached once upon a time who was really, really good player. And him and his family was upset that he wasn't getting any recruiting. And they said, well, the kid was kind of a dog. He, you know, he had a reputation of being kind of lazy. And why is that? You know, like, look, the, the, the word's out. These coaches, this is how they provide for their family. So if they take a kid that's got a reputation of kind of being kind of a lazy dog or a team killer or whatever it might be, you know, that's going to be on them, you know. And I always made the joke after the fact with, with this kid and said, hey, man, you're going to get one of my buddies fired. <laughs> that's a, you know, one of my buddies is going to take a chance on you, and you're going to come in there and be a lazy dog and not work hard and only practice hard when you want to and show up late occasionally and all that kind of stuff. You know, you can't do that. There's too many good players. There are too many good guys. We talked about a minute ago with the, with the growth of AAU basketball. It's growing everywhere, not just in St. Louis. It's growing in Kansas City. It's growing in Indianapolis. It's growing in Arkansas. It's growing in Chicago, even though Chicago's got a ton of players already. You know, it's growing everywhere. So there's good players that you don't have to put up with a guy being a lazy dog or a team killer like you, maybe you had to 15, even when we were playing, early 2000s, because there wasn't many opportunities for kids to get better. So in turn, there wasn't that many good players. So I think – Get back to our original point. I think that parents and players need to be realistic. They need to focus on getting better. 
And it's all part of the process. You know, you can't just say, oh, I play AU basketball, so I'm going to be recruited. Well, a lot of dudes are playing AU basketball because they want to be recruited. So what are you doing to separate yourself? Are you put, putting yourself in the right position to be recruited where I'm going to get better, I'm going to be seen, I'm going to be playing the right events? You know, because if you're a Division two player and somehow you wind up on a, like a loaded roster, now I'm going to go play at like Peach Jam or somewhere, you know, that's loaded with the top 100 kids in America essentially. Well, you're not going to be seen there. You're not, that's not a good fit for you. You know, you need to be somewhere where you're playing where the MIAA, GLVC, NAIs, you know, schools are going to see you play. You know, so I think the, the humility side of it, of where, can I really, where can I really play and where can I really get better and where can I really seen, be seen comes into play a lot more. So that's my long-winded answer to a, to yeah. a seemingly easy question. That was good, though. I appreciate it. Uh, we got to touch on multiple things that we really haven't talked about on the pod. Uh, regards to how scholarships work at these lower levels, recruitment, um, kind of seeing the other side of the NEI level. But um, that's all we got. Uh, I appreciate it. Marsha, I appreciate you coming on, giving some uh, nuances regards to uh, being an athletic director, a college assistant, and then kind of the recruiting side for uh, kids too. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. All right, guys. Like I said, if you'll like, comment, subscribe, and give us feedback. Like I said, it's good or bad. We just want to simply provide value for you guys. So see you guys next time. Next.